Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And really, Jim and I are just waiting to see what story breaks on TV uh, as we get close to the end of our recording today. Uh, if you were with us earlier in the week, you know we just missed the... Uh, the Michael Avenatti news breaking yesterday. The Smollett news was breaking, and we'll be talking about that a lot more today. So let's see what uh, breaking news happens during our conversation today. We're sponsored today by Quip Electric Toothbrushes, starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you get your first refill pack for free. Getquip.com slash martini. So, Jim, our good martini takes us to the floor of the U.S. Senate yesterday where the brilliance and the tactical brilliance of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was on display. Uh, The Democrats brought forth their Green New Deal, and he said, hey, this is great. Let's vote on this. And the Democrats immediately freaked out, never expecting him to actually move on it. Uh, In the end, uh, it was shot down on a procedural motion, 57 to nothing. Most Democrats voting present, claiming that the motives of the majority were bad or something like that. Four Democrats did, in fact, join the Republicans to vote no. Kirsten Sinema, Joe Manchin, Doug Jones, and Angus King, who's really an independent, I guess. But um, the the highlight of the day for me, Jim, and I think for you too, perhaps, was the floor speech of Utah Senator Mike Lee, who decided that this bill was so stupid it didn't deserve a serious uh, response, other than to say it's ludicrous. So his arguments against it were going to be uh, very entertaining. So here's how he started uh, with a picture of Ronald Reagan on a dinosaur. This is, of course, a picture of former President Ronald Reagan uh, naturally firing a, a machine gun while riding on the back of a dinosaur. You'll notice a couple of important features here. Uh, first of all, uh, the rocket launcher uh, strapped to President Reagan's back. And then the stirring, <laughs> unmistakable patriotism of the velociraptor holding up a tattered American flag, a symbol of all it means to be an American. No. Critics might quibble with this depiction of the climactic battle of the Cold War because, while awesome, in real life there was no climactic battle. There was no battle with or without velociraptors. The Cold War, as we all know, was won without firing a shot. But that quibble actually serves our purposes here today, Mr. President. Because this image has as much to do with overcoming communism in the 20th century as the Green New Deal has to do with overcoming climate change in the 21st. The aspirations of the proposal have been called radical. They've been called extreme. But mostly, they're ridiculous. There isn't a single serious idea here. Not one. And so then he went on to talk about some of the ideas that the uh, proponents of the Green New Deal have, including eventually phasing out air travel, which he said might be okay for folks in the Acela Corridor between D.C. and Boston. What about folks who live in remote areas like Alaska? In a future without air travel, how are we supposed to get around the vast expanses of, say, Alaska during the winter? Well, I'll tell you how. Tauntauns, Mr. President. This is a beloved species of reptile mammals, native to the ice planet of Hoth. Now, while perhaps not as efficient in some ways uh, as 
airplanes or as snowmobiles, these hairy bipedal species of space lizards offer their own unique benefits. Not only are tauntauns carbon neutral, but according to a report a long time ago and issued far, far away, they may even be fully recyclable and usable for their warmth, especially on a cold night. Jim, if you hadn't been won over before the uh, Empire Strikes Back reference there, I'm sure he won you over there. Uh, Mike Lee, he could have dissected this thing a million different ways seriously, but I'm sure he would have never gotten the attention he got with this. Mike Lee, I love you. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I mean, seriously, when he says tauntauns are carbon neutral, considering how cow farts are a menace, are we sure there's no carbon emissions from the tauntauns? There was a good statement in the Wall Street Journal editorial page today, uh, Greg, where they observed, think about it, this was a debate about climate action on the floor of the Senate, Greg. You know what Senator Kirsten Gillibrand called it? A partisan stunt to sidestep needed debate on climate action. <laughs> How dare you, you know, interrupt our effort to have a debate on this by having a debate on this. Now, what's pretty obvious here is that Democrats want to get the, the, uh, the, the, the benefits of touting the Green New Deal. Oh, we're going to save the planet. This is a matter of urgency. Our opponents don't care about this. Our opponents are in denial about this. But most Democratic lawmakers don't actually want to go through with the, you know, uh, retrofitting every single structure in the entire United States. Uh, The discussion about banning the internal combustion engine, the potential restrictions on private ownership of cars, the, the cow farts that were mentioned earlier, air travel, all the other stuff that's in there that while may not have been in the original House resolution that were in the talking points put out by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's office. Um, I mean, here's the thing. If the House resolution, as I keep putting out, is not legislation, well, then there's really not much harm in voting for it, right? It's just saying, it's not, here's the plan on how we do this, and we're going to do this. It's a, we should do this. But Democrats weren't even willing to vote for that. And so you now have something which got zero positive votes for this. And I put this to, you know, The argument is, ah, this is, you know, Mitch McConnell has bad motives for this. Look, if if the 47 Democrats that voted for this and said yes, would the Green New Deal be in better shape today or would it be in worse shape today? Pretty obvious. It would be better shape that basically, you know, okay, this is something the Democratic Party is unified on. Or let's say, you know, the 43 who voted present decided to vote yes. Well, okay, that's great. Of course, this would mean that the 43 could then have this thrown at them in a re-election bid. Uh, It's not surprising that it's the red state ones or the purple state ones who are most hesitant about this proposal. So what Democrats have is a piece of legislation that they love in theory, but they don't actually want to put their names next to in practice because they know it's absolutely unfeasible and would mean basically mean turning the economy upside down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're getting called out on this and they kind of are in this weird, ridiculous situation in which they're insisting that, ah, it's a victory because we all voted present. Well, besides the fact they keep emphasizing we've got, what, 10 years, 11 years, 12 years to save the planet. Uh, and the next thing is this idea of, you know, oh, well, we haven't had hearings on this and we have, you know, well, wait a second. Is the hearing going to change your mind on this? I saw, um, uh, Ed Markey saying, look, we haven't even consulted. We haven't even had testimony from the scientists. What are the scientists going to tell you? No. You know, are you, are you, do you really expect that during a hearing, your co-sponsors of the legislation voted present today? It makes absolutely no sense. 
And I think uh, Mitch McConnell did a very good job of exposing them for how shallow their support for this is, that they report they support it in theory, but they don't actually want to vote for it. And oh, by the way, Mike Lee, you've given us our single most joyous moment on the Senate floor, probably since Dick Cheney greeted Pat Leahy. <laughs> Yes, he also talked about breeding giant seahorses so folks from Hawaii could get back to the mainland. And uh, just a very memorable speech all the way around. And, and, and Jim, I don't know what the Democrats uh, would have us do when it comes to personal hygiene. I'm sure they're not big fans of plastic. So if you've got toothpaste tubes, does that harm the environment? Or using water to rinse off your toothbrush before and after you use it? All sorts of problems uh, just for day-to-day use. But uh, speaking of toothbrushes, one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth, yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. So as we're taping this today, listeners, I've chosen not to go upstairs and get my Quip toothbrush and use it on air to demonstrate it to let you hear the excitement. But I think you can get the idea. I use it every day. I'm going to use it this morning. I'm going to use it later today. Uh, it's absolutely the finest uh, toothbrush I've ever owned. Worth noting, it's got a multi-use cover that mounts to the mirror and unmounts to slide over your bristles for on-the-go brushing. You just don't want, you know, your toothbrush flying around and getting stuff on it and stuff like that. It declutters your sink or cabinet, makes traveling with an electric toothbrush much easier, uh, doesn't require any clunky charger, and it can run for three months on a single charge. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. Because apparently three out of every four of us use bristles that are old, worn out, or ineffective, much like Senate Democrats. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrush. I'm sure they're going to love that one. Uh, so Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. So Jim obviously loves Quip. He just told you why. Many others do. And uh, that opinion is backed up by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you will get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. And you know what? They just send it to you, like Jim said. You don't have to remember when you last changed the brushes and and then call them. It's automatic. That's your first refill pack free. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini. Getquip.com slash martini. All right, Jim, yesterday as we were exiting the program, we saw the news on our respective TVs, but we were still totally listening to each other and talking about John Brennan, uh, that Chicago prosecutors, the state's attorney there, are dropping all charges against Empire actor Jesse Smollett, we didn't know what was afoot then. Uh, We still don't really know exactly what was afoot. A very terse statement from the prosecutor, essentially saying that uh, due to uh, community service and the fact that Jesse Smollett is going to forfeit uh, his bond from when he was arraigned uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, we're just going to let all this go. No more charges. They are being dropped. Shortly after that was announced, uh, here's Smollett uh, once again declaring his innocence. I've been truthful and consistent on every single level since day one. I would not be my mother's son if I was capable of one drop of what I've been accused of. This has been an incredibly difficult time, honestly one of the worst of my entire life. But I'm a man of faith, and I'm a man that has knowledge of my history, and I would not bring my family, our lives, or the movement through a fire like this. I just wouldn't. 
Well, even the prosecutors who let him go and got him off the hook here say he wasn't exonerated. They still say the facts of the case are what they thought they were. Uh, the police chief, uh, Eddie Johnson, saying that uh, if he really thought he was innocent, he should have said so in a court of law and let the, the jury render its verdict. Uh, the biggest surprise, perhaps, was just how strong liberal Democratic Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel blasted this decision and also uh, Smollett's declaration of innocence. Mr. Smollett is still saying that he is innocent still running down the Chicago Police Department? How dare him? How dare him? After everybody saw, and I want to remind you, this is not the superintendent's word against his. The grand jury, a sliver of the evidence, and they came to a conclusion, as did the state's attorney's office. Jim, it's a weird day when we're, hey, nice job, Rahm Emanuel. Yeah, I, I, thank goodness he said how dare him and not how dare he. So at least I still have a bone to pick uh, about the grammar of that denunciation. Yeah, so here's the my, my, uh, Jeff Blayhard is one of the uh, the music-centered podcasts for National Review. He lives in Chicago, and he made the argument, look, you put Jesse Smollett on trial, you were going to get a circus. You would get a circus. He would probably bring up every issue the Chicago Police Department has had with young African-American men recently. And let's face it, those are not insubstantial issues. Um, and it was probably going to drag the police department through the mud. He was going to try to kick up as much dust as possible. And we know we're dealing with somebody who is an absolutely shameless liar. You can kind of understand or see the city wanting to avoid that scenario. And it's worth noting you're doing you're dealing with something where you're going to end up with him probably getting sentenced to community service as is. Although it's worth noting when you add it all up, it became 24 felonies. I don't know if he was overcharged on that or, or what. You know, It seemed really weird to go through the handway. So you could understand the pursuit of a plea deal to avoid a trial. That part kind of makes sense. The decision, though, to basically not just uh, – the first part is this conclusion that he had done uh, community service before, so they were going to count that towards his sentence. Or actually, not, there was no actual sentence. First, they dropped all the charges. Um, they they then expunged his record and sealed the court records of all this, which is just baffling. Um, it, you know, basically, I'm not going to let you see any of the documentation for this decision. Is basically a giant flashing neon sign. Hey, something dirty happened here. Um, the fact, at the very least, you would have expected the requirement that Smollett admit guilt. That's what goes into a plea agreement. You say, okay, I did something wrong. I did X. In response, I'm going to do Y, and you guys are going to drop the charges on Z or something like that. That's usually how it works. And when the prosecutors say this is not an exoneration, well, if you didn't charge him, if you made all the charges go away and all you're doing is keeping his $10,000, you are kind of exonerated. There is, you know, um, you know, maybe Smollett was supposed to go out and say, oh, I regret my role in this big controversy. But he didn't do that. You know, you're dealing with a guy who's very, very comfortable lying. So uh, what was going on here? Well, look, we don't know exactly the whole story here, but there is this odd little wrinkle uh, that I don't think is worth ignoring. You know, the state's uh, attorney, Kim Fox, recused herself. Um, she had contact with Smollett's representatives early on in the investigation. That seems a little strange. But then it turns out that uh, Fox had been contacted by Tina Chen, um, Tina Chen maybe, uh, former chief of staff of First Lady Michelle Obama, uh, who basically said that the fam- actor's family had concerns about the investigation. Well, look, if, if, you, the, if the investigation starts to focus on you that it's a hoax, you should have concerns about the investigation. I don't really understand. What was this conversation going on? We know they had texts. We know they had that stuff. Now, the really fascinating thing 
is that Tina Chen is a close friend of Mayor Rahm Emanuel's wife. So we've got Michelle Obama's former chief of staff and Barack Obama's former chief of staff on opposite sides of this argument. Oh, by the way, just for good measure, let's throw in David Axelrod was tweeting that he this seemed like struck him as a, as a travesty. This struck him as a as a you know uh, terrible injustice. Greg, I don't know about you. I think the next big Obama administration reunion is just going to be lit, right? There's going to be some fun arguments going on amongst the whole crew there. Um, the other thing is if you if you look at this as a mess, and, and we, look, we were actually kind of strangely thrilled when, when the police threw the book at Smollett because um, it pointed to a, uh, a rare case of accountability. We see, you know, look, I'm not going to look, not all hate crimes are fake, but there are a decent amount that are hoaxed. And the only deterrent you have against people trying to do this sort of thing is that if they file a police report and it's false, that's a crime. Now, sometimes you can argue about whether this is the punishments are severe enough or not. But in this case, the Chicago PD said, enough, we're going to hold you accountable. You don't get to make up a story like this uh, and, and stir up racial tension that's in the city and stir up po- uh, political tensions and all of that. Um, you don't get to make up a story and waste our time like this. We're going to hold you accountable. And then the prosecutor said, eh, never mind. Nah, <laughs> you know, uh, it is very much the Chicago way. There's still possibly federal cho- federal charges against Smollett. Uh, the FBI was investigating mail fraud for the idea that he had mailed his uh, a death threat to himself. Look, this is a really ugly mess, and it leaves, lives up to everybody's stereotype of Chicago and everybody's belief that uh, powerful progressives can buy their way out of trouble in a way that no one else can. Your next attack ad against the Bears is going to be brutal. I better come up with something <laughs> about New York or East Rutherford or something. But uh, before Rahm Emanuel and the New police... Jersey. not looking so bad right now, <laughs> is it? Uh, before Rahm Emanuel and the, uh, Eddie Johnson, the police superintendent, took to the microphones, but after we found out that uh, the charges were being dropped, this was Brian Stelter's uh, analysis on CNN. Uh, it's a collision of race and, and celebrity and all these factors. And yeah. politics. And, and so messy as a result. It was because politics. an anonymous source said to TMZ that Smollett said they were wearing MAGA hats. Yeah. And this was a Trump supporter attack against a black man. It became political within a few minutes. And, uh, and that's what's made this even harder to, to get to the truth about. There's been so much pressure on the police, partly because it became political. And, of course, whenever there's celebrity involved, uh, it takes on a life yes, of its own. It does indeed. It's an ugly collision. Jim, wasn't that what Jesse Smollett told police? I mean, this anonymous source telling TMZ supposedly on the hook here. Uh, what was fascinating to me, though, is once Rahm Emanuel was outraged, the panel at CNN completely switched and everybody was outraged that the charges were dropped. They had Democratic cover at that point. January 29th, all right? Uh, USA Today, Empire star Jesse Smollett. Attackers yelled, this is MAGA country during beating. This is USA Today. This isn't TMZ. This isn't some, you know, fringe, crazy report or anything like that. Um, Brian Stelzer gets a lot of grief. And there are times I can feel like it's it's kicking somebody who is down or piling on or something. Um, let's just say on Twitter, many, many, many comparisons <laughs> to a potato. And that's, that's, that's a little mean. Craig, I, I'm just going to come out and say... When you say things like this, when you make arguments like this, you really should not be hosting a show entitled <clears throat> Reliable Sources. There's a lot of clips on uh, social media of him interviewing Michael Avenatti a few months back and explaining why he takes him seriously as a possible presidential candidate. So um, no, we could just be you know, one winner after another. <laughs> the, the highlight reel for Brian Stelter this week is uh, pretty short. 
All right, let's look at the uh, crazy Martini now. And uh, we still think Joe Biden's probably going to run for president. He keeps not making a final decision here, but he keeps giving hints that he's likely to do this. But he's got a big problem, Jim, because in this SJW intersectional environment, Joe Biden is a straight white male. And, well, that's that's just three strikes against you. So can he overcome this? He's trying to. We talked about the rumors a few days ago that he might preemptively name Stacey Abrams as his running mate. There's been some pushback from his people that that that's not really under consideration. Uh, But uh, Joe Biden giving speech. You talked about this in the jolt uh, going back to 1991, which he says was more than 30 years ago. We'll just let that one slide in Joe Biden world. Uh, That was 28 years ago. And he talks about how Anita Hill didn't get a fair shake. Here's what he said. I wish I could have done something. I opposed Clarence Thomas' nomination. I voted against him. But I also realized there was a real and perceived problem the committee faced. There were a bunch of white guys. No, I mean sincerely, a bunch of white guys hearing, hearing this testimony in the Senate Judiciary Committee. So when Anita Hill, when Anita Hill came to testify, she faced a committee that didn't fully understand what the hell it was all about. To this day, I regret I couldn't come up with a way to get her the kind of hearing she deserved, given the courage she showed by reaching out to us. The hearing she deserved was a hearing where she was respected, where the tone of the questioning was not hostile and insulting, where the fact that she stepped forward was recognized as an act of courage in and of itself. Then later he went on this tangent about British common law in the 1300s about how men couldn't beat their wives with uh, rods that were beyond the width of the thumb and somehow we haven't advanced beyond that. Here's what he said. That the court of common law decided they had to do something about the extent of the death. So you know what they said? No man has a right to chastise his woman with a rod thicker than the circumference of his thumb. This is English jurisprudential culture, a white man's culture. It's got to change. It's got to change. Jim, we haven't changed at all in 700 years. And the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee 28 years ago, if only he could have done something. Yeah, uh, you, you jumped to both of my punchlines there, Greg, which one was being like, you know, gee, if only Biden knew somebody, if, he, if only he knew the chairman. <laughs> who was running those committees. Maybe if he had a chance to speak to him, if he had a chance to influence his decision-making in some way, it wouldn't have, you know, many folks are also pointing out that, you know, Biden's committee staff leaked a whole bunch of stuff. Like like this idea that, oh, Biden took it easy on Clarence Thomas during this whole thing, kind of baffling. Um, The interesting thing is, is that, you know, Biden could make a much more, I think, convincing argument of, you know, no, I ran that, that hearing as best I could. I didn't, didn't take it easy on Clarence Thomas. I extended every courtesy to Anita Hill. Blah, blah. He, he could try. This idea of, oh, oh, woe is me. And, oh, I can't believe I, I did this. If only I'd be, if only there was something I could have done. You know, no one's going to buy that. Um, I mean, if, if the chairman of the committee couldn't give her the hearing she deserved, who could? Uh, but then the next really kind of odd little thing in there, when, when he makes this, you know, this is a white man's culture. It's got to change. It's got to change. Whether or not you find that to be an accurate assessment, let's just take for the sake of argument, a significant chunk of the Democratic Party sees that as an accurate statement, that this is a white man's culture that needs to change. Do you think they can do that best through nominating Joe Biden? (laughs) Or can they do that best through nominating a woman or Cory Booker or Julian Castro or, you know, 
Uh, maybe even Pete, uh, by the way, it's Buttigieg, I've found out uh, definitively. It is Pete Buttigieg. Uh, you know, he's gay. You know, that would be a, a groundbreaking step for the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, um, all of that would be that. Joe Biden is saying the era of white men running thing has to change. And that's why you have to vote for me. And I don't think that's going to. That, that, he's carrying the counter argument against his nomination into the primary. That doesn't make any sense. Then. Um, so, yeah, I did a whole bunch whole, uh, lengthy analysis of what Joe Biden brings to the table in today's morning jolt. You know, the problem is that he's running a message that is at, at odds with who he is and what he's done in the party. He's trying to run a message of change when he, in fact, I think you safely say, is the Democratic Party establishment. He's been a heartbeat away from the presidency for eight years. And even before then, he was an influential Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman. He was a Senate Judiciary chairman. You want to talk about the, the number of Democrats who had great influence in shaping the modern Democratic Party, you'd probably say Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and then you'd probably put Biden in there, maybe John Kerry. Right? I mean, these, these are all pretty, you know, um, you can count on one hand the people who had more, more influence over things over the last couple of years. So the idea that he's the guy who's going to come in and be this dramatic change that the Democratic Party grassroots want just doesn't seem to make all that much sense. And the arguments in, in favor of him keep getting more and more, um, uh, you know, just, just detached from, from the nature of who he is. Um, so the, and the other thing you mentioned, the, the, the rule of thumb thing. First of all, it's not actually clear that the rule of thumb, old saying, comes from this. So entomologists have looked back. It's kind of an urban legend in the realm of, of how this phrase came about. But the second thing is, this was being challenged in the 1600s. So the idea that, oh, you know, What's very clear is that, you know, uh, Joe Biden, all, all 77 years of him, is just sitting there and he's got the old filing cabinet of his mind and he needs a sexism anecdote. So he brings this up, even though I think you can say, oh, like beating your wife has been a crime for a really long time. <laughs> and I think the argument that, oh, the problem is that our society takes this too easily and too simply um, I think you could have said that about American society at some point. I don't think that's an accurate statement of, of the way things are today. Um, so again, even his arguments in, in against sexism are outdated. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how things shake for Joe Biden. I think he is, you know, we're seeing day by day, week by week, he's trying to shoehorn himself into a role that he is not natural, a natural fit for. Uh, and it could be absolutely Absolutely hilarious, or maybe kind of a, just a very sad uh, sight in the last act of him in American politics. Uh, if this not if his bid crashes and burns, as uh, as now seems like a, a distinct possibility. Yeah, I think it's just sad. I mean, this is a guy, uh, whether or not you think he should be president or even the Democratic standard bearer, uh, this is a guy who had a decent argument of saying, I've been around a long time. I was with uh, President Obama, who the party supposedly loves. Um, I'm not an insane socialist, but I'll probably do most of what you people on the left would want me to do. But instead, he's trying to figure out, like you said, how a guy who's um, basically being kicked to the curb by the, the incoming generation of progressives, how he can become relevant to them. And he's just humiliating himself in the process. Yeah. You know, again, like, if you're proud of your record, run on your record. If you're not proud of your record, you probably shouldn't run for president. <laughs> <laughs> right. Look, vote for me. I totally have learned from all my mistakes. I'm going to be nothing like the way I was for the past 30 years. 
uh, in public life. I, I don't, yeah, not a winning argument there, Greg. Oh, man, quite a day. Uh, no breaking news, Jim. I'm a little bit surprised here, but... Um... Well, okay, so while we were chatting and I was totally paying attention to everything you were saying, <laughs> yes. uh, Stacey Abrams was on The View and said that, uh, they asked her about the rumor that Biden had talked to her about being the running mate and they were going to announce it early. And she said, if I'm running for an office, I'm running for an office. I'm not running for second place. So... That proposal, if it was ever on the table, does not appear to be on the table anymore. So, hey, our, our streak continues, Greg. All right. Very, very nice. And you're actually off for the next couple of days. You'll be at the National Review Ideas Summit. So um, hope you got a lot of good ideas to share. I was about to say, what am I doing there, Greg? <laughs> I have no idea. No, I do know what I'm doing. Uh, for those who will be in attendance, I'll be, uh, there'll be a discussion, not a debate, a discussion between Jonah Goldberg and Rich Lowry about nationalism. Uh, out of all the tasks and all the duties I could possibly have at this conference, moderating a totally not a debate between my boss and my best friend at the National Review. Uh, boy, what a great assignment. Now, what could go wrong, right, Greg? So um, anyway, can't wait. Hope to see some listeners there. Um, and if I will see you uh, on Monday, Greg. Sounds good. Enjoy the time. I will see you Monday. Rob Long of National Review and other podcast fame will be in Jim's place the next couple of days. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Tune in again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. And in the meantime, head over to getquip.com slash martini to get that Quip toothbrush and your first refill pack of brushes free.